Okay. Um, the scripture today that we're going to look at is in 1 Kings 19, 1, verse 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by the ti- this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals, and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him again and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with this word. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with this word. I am the only one left, and now... They're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve seven thousand in Israel, 
all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouth have not kissed him. All right, that was a lot of text. Thanks, Elo. You made it. So, welcome to another edition of uh, Humans of the Bible. Last week we did uh, a special service, because if you weren't here, I kind of just, we had it on our hearts uh, that we needed to do a prayer service, all considering everything going on in the world right now. Uh, but this week we're back uh, to, for another edition, and I'm excited. Uh, and just if you're kind of just jumping in on this, in this series, what we've been doing is just taking these excerpts from different people in the Bible. Uh, we can't look at the whole story, we can't look at every single aspect, but just kind of taking these excerpts from their lives and taking a little closer look at their life, at their story, through the lens of their humanity. And from this, we can conclude that actually the Bible is filled with humans, with real people, but really lived, really had favorite foods and, and just normal things about them. They were just people. And because of this, uh, we can kind of also conclude that uh, we also are humans, and in that we can connect to their stories, connect to them, empathize with their pains, learn from their situations, from their successes as well as their failures. And that's kind of the goal with this series. And with every human story found in the Bible, we see, both, we see always both sides of it. We see the humanity of their story in them, in their kind of, in, a lot of times in their weakness, but also in how God brings them up in their strength. But we see both the humanity of the people themselves as well as the divinity of God's sovereign plan in every single story. And how he interacts with them, how he leads them, how he loves them, and how he works through them for a greater purpose always. And ultimately, when we look at the Bible as a whole, we, every story, every story of the Bible, every human story of the Bible is always parting to God's, or leading to God's plan for salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the true story of every human found in Scripture, pointing to Christ. So, Today, the human of the Bible we're looking at, if you couldn't tell from the text, is Elijah. And the full story, I always encourage you guys to read this on your own time, is uh, 1 Kings 17 through 19, as well as 2 uh, Kings 1 and 2. Uh, you kind of see a lot of, it's, it's very compact his, when he's uh, brought into the story. A lot of things happening always at once. Um, and today I want us to examine this kind of very human moment that we see with Elijah, as we looked at in the text. This is a point when we see one of the greatest prophets of all time, and I mean, even in the New Testament and just throughout Israel for, for you know, hundreds of years after that, this, uh, he was just kind of known as like this really great prophet, the great prophet Elijah. And we see him here, this great prophet, maybe one of the greatest, finding himself at his very lowest point. But first, uh, before we get into what we're going to look at in this text itself, we need to kind of look at how he got to that point. We can't just dive into uh, the bottom of the well. We need to know how did he get there first? How did he fall in? What brought him to that point? So Elijah is a prophet that we see was called by God, raised up by God with a specific purpose to bring the people back to God. 
historically, uh, long before this, and, uh, and throughout the is- Israel's history, it just kind of is a cycle, it seems. Uh, but uh, they had kind of turned away from God, and King Ahab, who's the king at the time, and his wife Jezebel, who was a, just a very special lady when it comes to wickedness, uh, these were the rulers over Israel at the time. And they had turned the nation away from God. In fact, actually, it was Jezebel who brought in her gods from where she came from, and they were worshiping Baal instead of God. It started off kind of alongside God, God and Baal, but slowly uh, the prophets were being killed and Baal was being elevated and God was being put down. And a couple, just an interesting thought on Baal to kind of uh, tie in with the story that we're going to be looking at here. Baal uh, was a god uh, worshipped by the Canaanites and is known for being, amongst other things, he was a kind of a, a, the lord of the earth. Uh, a fertility god, which was just kind of like, I feel like all the gods were a god of fertility uh, during that time. That was very important. You know, having children was a good thing. And so uh, all of the gods that they worshipped or created uh, always had something to do with fertility. Uh, but something else I, I found really interesting that I read is that he was also known as the, the lord of rain and dew. And this is interesting because God tells Elijah uh, a, a while back before we, this text we're looking at today, uh, that he's going to send a famine by stopping the rain. And he does this through Elijah. So he, he sends Elijah to pray, and by, through Elijah's prayer, uh, the rain stops. And it's almost as if God's like taunting Baal a little bit already from the beginning. Like, you're the Lord of, of what again? Uh, isn't this your territory? You should have control over this, shouldn't you? Uh, and so God's already kind of setting up for what he's going to be doing. And it's, God also says that it's only through Elijah that the rain can come again. And so because of that, uh, God, does, God wants to get him as far away from the king so that there's no uh, pressure for him to bring that rain back. Uh, so he sends him out into the wilderness, and we see some really cool stories. He's fed by ravens for a time, and then he's blesses, he blesses a widow and her son with a, a jar of oil and flour that just never seemed to run out. Uh, actually ends up raising that, that uh, widow's son from the dead. First uh, person in the Bible to ever do that. Some, some good things. Again, read that uh, through the whole story. I encourage you to do that. Uh, but finally, Elijah is sent back to the king, to King Ahab. And he's going to bring the rain back. And before he does, he's going to issue a challenge. A pretty famous challenge. And it's really a showdown, if you will. Between Baal and God, I, I, just an amazing story. Perhaps uh, one of the, high, the highlights and heights of, of Elijah's story, and certainly of his ministry, of his uh, career, if you will, as a prophet, and certainly a very well-known uh, accounting. And in this too, in this situation, I think we also see some of uh, Elijah's humanity. I was actually, uh, didn't really add this in my notes, it's always dangerous going over my notes, but uh, this morning in my daily Bible reading, I kind of went, I was past this uh, reading about Elisha, who comes after Elijah, and every time he's in the story, he's, he's very just like subtle, he doesn't say a whole lot, I feel like, uh, he's very kind of profound, he's like, go here and do this, and it's just very kind of dry, where Elijah was not like that. He was like really bold and outspoken. And here we kind of have him basically kind of setting up this this situation where he's like, you know, my God can totally beat up your God. And if you don't believe me, meet me at Mount Carmel tomorrow at noon and I'll prove it to you. And that's kind of, that's, and that's literally what happens. It's, it's not that paraphrased. (laughs) And so this, and this is the story that's leading up to what we're at, the text that we just went into. 
Here's the story. Here's how it goes. So Elijah is there, and he's alone. He's on Mount Carmel. They, everybody, it, it's happening. The showdown's going down. He's there, and he's alone representing the one true God. And actually, the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So he's, I mean, representing it in name and body and action, everything. Now, Baal, on the other hand, he's got the numbers. It doesn't seem like a very fair fight if you were to kind of meet on the playground, because they show up with 450 prophets ready to do whatever is necessary for this showdown. Now, both sides, it's decided, are going to pick a bull. They're going to build an altar to their respective gods. And the challenge is, whose god can burn the sacrifice on their own? Because if, you're, if he's a real god, gods don't need people. They don't need us. So surely we can just set up the sacrifice and Baal or God can burn, bring up the fire, burn the the offering, the sacrifice themselves. That's the challenge. So he lets them go first, gentlemanly, kind of knowing, being pretty confident what's going to happen. And of course, nothing's happening. And Elijah, again, just this amazing guy, bold man of God, that he is, he begins to mock them. And I want to read this because this is, I mean, you can't even paraphrase it. It's just, this is the text. 1 Kings eighteen twenty seven. So at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Uh, perhaps he's just in deep thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's just fallen asleep and you need to wake him up. It's like, whoa. <laughs> The false prophets begin to do everything they can. They're crying out. They're screaming out. They're cutting themselves, doing everything they can to try to make something happen. Maybe a little spark, something, maybe blowing on it a little bit. Nothing's happening. Of course, nothing's happening. Finally, Elijah's like, guys, you're making a mess, man. You're bleeding all over the place. Let me try. And then he has this really solemn moment. He builds up God's, uh, an altar that had been broken down, an altar that was made for God and he places 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Also a, kind of a, an important thing because this, at this time the, the kingdom had been split. So he sets these 12 stones for the 12 tribes. And then after preparing the sacrifice, putting all the wood in its place, he's like, wait, no, no, this isn't enough. Let's bring in some water. And so they bring in water and just dump water on it again and again and again. So much that everything is drenched. The ground's drenched. There's a, a trench around it. It's filled and overflowing with water. It's like, no way could you ever light this. I don't care how good of a Boy Scout you are. That wood is not going to light. And then in 1 Kings 18, 36 through 39, I want to read this just right from the text. And this is, again, right going into what we're going to be, what our text that we just went through. Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. There's nothing left. There's just a crater. He burned everything up. 
When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. They fell to their face and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And after that, Elijah rounds up all of these 450 false prophets and slaughters them. Ends it. It's done. What a scene. What a scene that must have been. What a height of anyone's ministry as a prophet to have a moment like that. The people have, are repenting, crying out, He is the Lord. He is God. The false teachers have been removed. The revival has begun, right? Then God sends back the rain through Elijah's prayer. It happens right after this. He, he prays. Also a really cool scene. It's like just a cloud in the distance. and he's, Anyway, you can read it for yourself. The rain comes back. And after all of this that's happened... Can you imagine how Elijah must have felt the height he must have been at? God called him to bring the people back to him. And here is the plan in action. Everything's falling into place. The people have seen with their own eyes the power of God. They have with their own lips confessed he is truly the one true God. Really? I mean, what more of a sign could you ask for than literally fire just raining down? What a scene it must have been. And Elijah is a, was ecstatic. You get this impression he was ecstatic. Look at what God is doing. Surely this was the beginning of the change that God had promised. He even says it in his prayer when he rains down the fire. That you're doing this. This is all about turning the people back to you. Turning their hearts back to you. He knew what the plan was. And he was excited. And his excitement is felt. And one of my favorite images or scenes, if you will, in the Old Testament, and this is because I'm a bit goofy and find things like this funny. Uh, but King Ahab got on his horse and is, or chariot, we don't really know actually, he just says he's riding something, and he takes off and he's heading back to the capital city where he and Jezebel reigned. And Elijah, it says, picked up his garment. So they had like these long garments. In fact, we know he had a garment of, of hair, probably camel hair or something. And uh, he picks it up and runs faster than the king and beats him to the city. Which, I mean, I don't know, just picture that. Just this kind of guy, like, just running faster than a horse. Okay, I told you I was weird, but shows how excited he was. But I wonder, why? Why would he go there? Why would he go to the capital city? That's where the king and queen were, especially Queen Jezebel, who was the force behind having all of the prophets of God executed. Why would he go there? Why would he go there unless he truly believed this was the beginning of the change? This was the beginning of the revolution that was promised. Elijah must have thought that either God was going to change the hearts of King Ahab and King Jezebel and turn them to God and then all of Israel was going to turn with them or because the people's hearts were going to be changed, they would just rise up against them. I don't, maybe we don't know exactly what he thought but he, because he went there, it's clear that he, was, he thought, this is it, man. This is the change. I'm ready. And this leads to our text today. Because Ahab does get there eventually. He catches up to Elijah, who's been running. Sorry. And here it comes, right? He tells, he tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Whoa! Everything he's done, man, fire coming down, prophets are slain, and man, people turning to God. He tells her everything that has been going on. But in verse 2, we get 
a bit of a surprise and a, a shock that comes to Elijah. Jezebel responds to Elijah, not with a grateful heart, not with a changed heart, not with a new perspective about this God of Israel, but with a death threat. In fact, a vow death threat uh, that she was even vowed on her own life that he would be killed. Elijah, this mighty man of God who just called down fire, the fire of God to prove to the people that God is who he says he is, begins to fall into despair. This is not what he expected. This is not what he thought was going to happen next. And the next thing we see from Elijah is incredibly surprising considering who he is and what we just saw him do on Mount Carmel. But also incredibly human, which is why I chose this particular incident. In verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid. Elijah was afraid? What? And ran for his life. Oh, how we all want to see God do amazing things. Oh, I want to see moments like that. I want to see the fire raining down and like people just like repenting and seeing big change happen. Man, especially now, you know, I, I mean, we did, we kind of talked about this last week with the prayer night. I mean, just looking at everything that's going on in the world, looking at all of the, the hate that's happening, all of the confusion that's going on in the world. Man, sometimes I just want to, I just long for God to do something big, to move, to show himself in a way that it's unmistakable to show his power and authority, to change hearts, to show people in his might and power and also in his love that they may know and experience his love and see the silliness of some of the things that they're doing and saying. But what this text is going to show us is that God always has a plan. God's got a plan. Good news. He knows what he's doing. And we are brought in to be a part of that plan. But sometimes it's not going to unfold the way we'd like it to or the way we thought it would. And when that happens, this can be incredibly disorienting for us and it can lead us to despair. Elijah doesn't know what to do now. What do I do now? That's, this isn't how this is supposed to work. That wasn't the plan. I mean, what more could the people need? What, what, I mean, really, it kind of also shows us that even signs of fire raining down, rains returning after three and a half years of drought, showing that God is clearly in control, sometimes still isn't enough for people to believe. Instead of seeing the change he thought would happen, he feels abandoned. He feels left alone. He feels afraid for his life and he doesn't know if how to continue how to go on what do i go from here elijah heads into the wilderness to hide and he quits the ministry if you will in verse 3 it says he left his servant he went to a, a town in judah and he left his servant so he let the interns go he fired his staff he said i'm done he has completely given up and he's not going to take his own life but he's happy to let god do it in verse 4 he says, I have had enough. Lord, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I've had enough. 
Oh, have you been in a moment like that? Have you been in a moment in your faith, in your faith walk with God, where you think, it's enough. I've had enough. Waiting and waiting to hear what God is calling you to do next. And you're going, spending time in prayer, and you're seeking Him, and you're seeking Him, but nothing seems to be clear. You don't know what to do, and you think, God, it's enough. Show me. I need to know. This is enough of the waiting. Struggling to get over something that you've been fighting with and never seeing victory and you're just going over and over again. You think, God, it's enough. Or like here with Elijah, straining with all your might and your ministry. Maybe even seeing God do something really cool, but then it just fizzles out or, or doesn't become what you thought it would be. Or, or you feel like, man, there's, not really, there's no fruit, there's no growth happening. What's going on? I'm, I know I'm being faithful. I know I'm doing what God's called me to do, but... Man, I'm just trudging through right now. It's enough. What do I do, God? Where do I go from here? This is where Elijah is. This is the moment we find him under this broom tree. How will God respond? How will God respond to this? He could have responded like he did to Job, right? Job has a similar situation, right? Just a really, you know, dark, bad place that he finds himself in. And he's like, God, it gets to a point where he's like, God, I don't deserve this. What's going on? And God's like, who do you think you are, Job? I'm God. This, and we looked at that with Job already. But God is there with him in this story. God is there with Elijah. He was there with Job as well. God is there with Elijah in his moments of despair, of depression, he comes as the angel of the Lord. God meets us sometimes, even at those bottoms. We feel alone. We want to cry out, God, it's enough, but we're not alone. God is there with us. He meets us there at the bottom. We're never truly alone when we belong to him. And he doesn't meet us all the same way as we're going to see in this, uh, as we continue through. But he always meets us. He's always there. And God, in his wisdom, is going to choose, because it's God's choice, God is going to choose to respond to Elijah on three different levels. He's going to respond to him on three different levels. Let's look at those. The first level that, he, that God responds to is he, God responds to Elijah's physical nature. That seems interesting. Not what I think many of us would have expected. He responds to his physical nature. Look at the first two things he does in verse 5. This is right out. He, he's ran away. He's in despair. He's like, God, take my life. He lays under a broom tree, falls asleep. And at once, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he wakes up and there's this nice, nice little, some bread, probably really good bread. I know Germans, you guys love bread. So I don't know. In Texas, we don't eat as much bread as you do. But I'm sure it was delicious. Nice thing to wake up from a nap to. God doesn't call him out. Could have. But he doesn't. He doesn't ask him if he needs to talk about it. He simply embraces him, touches him, and feeds him. What does this tell us about God? Well, it makes us remember, because sometimes we separate our physical nature from our spiritual nature. Okay, it's time to pray, and now I'm going to go do things that I want to do with my body, and that those are just kind of these separate things. We see that God knows us as, as physical beings as well. He knows that we get hungry. He knows that we have physical needs. And God begins by reaching out to and responding to Elijah's physical nature. It's very interesting. And sometimes, it's kind of a word of wisdom for us today, that sometimes in despair, we 
We just need that. We just need a hug. We just need to be embraced. We just need to be fed. To have joy in the simple things, sometimes that can go so much further than we think. When someone's, especially if we're reaching out to somebody who's in a dark place or in a struggling place, we want to be like, all right, just pray, brother. Oh, maybe you know, you're just, you're sinning. You need to stop sinning or whatever it is. And sometimes maybe just maybe give them a hug and give them, you know, a nice meal first. Give them some nice bread, whatever it is. Now, this is not always what we need. We don't always need that. That's not, not always the right way to go. I'm not saying that. But when it is, God meets us there. And to be really honest, here in the church, we need to remember that God is often going to use us to do that for each other. To reach out to each other, to minister to each other with these simple things. And there are moments when a hug, even though we're not really allowed to hug right now, sometimes we have to break the rules when, for God's sake. Anyway, delete that from the recording, please. Um, sometimes, though, really, a simple hug, an embrace, maybe just, hey, can I buy you lunch? Man, those things can really have a big impact on someone's life. And I love that God takes the time to embrace him and to feed him first. That's, that's where God begins by responding to Elijah's physical nature. And the second level, God responds to his psychological nature, his mind, what's going on up here? In fact, a good majority of this text that we read is Elijah kind of defending himself and maybe leaning towards whinging to God about his situation. Defending himself a bit poorly, we'll find out by the end. But God takes the time to let him speak, and he listens. He listens to Elijah. When we're in despair, sometimes we just need to tell God what we really think. Not what we think he needs to hear or wants to hear, because uh, he knows what you're thinking already, so tell him what you really think. He's not going to be surprised by anything you have to say. And God asks Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why did you leave your ministry? Why did you, you run away? Why are you afraid? That's what he's really asking. What are you doing here? And when God asks a question, it's never because he wants some information. He's like, really? What do you, wait, what are you doing here? That's not how that's supposed to be read. What are you doing here? You, he's giving him an opportunity to express himself, to tell why he feels the way he does, why he left his ministry, why he ran away, why he feels fearful. And what is Elijah's response? Well, he's, he feels alone. He feels abandoned. He says, I've been zealous for you. I've done everything I can. I mean, I've really, I've I've done the work. When all of Israel has rejected you, all the prophets have been slaughtered. I'm the only one left. I'm doing all the work and now they're going to try and kill me? In his despair, he feels as though there is no one else on earth trying to do what he's trying to do. I'm trying to accomplish a mission for you, God, and I'm all alone. There's no one helping me. Sometimes we can feel like that. I know, especially for those of us in ministry. <laughs> we can feel like, man, I'm doing all the work. And we need to take these times, these moments when we feel despair, we feel at our bottom. Just express yourself to God. Tell him what you really think. You're not going to surprise him. Now, that, that said, 
We want to express that. But we also don't want to live in that moment. We don't want to become just whiners to God all the time. We don't want to live in that moment forever. But at the same time, really, don't be afraid to tell God when you're upset that you're angry, that things are the way they are. You don't understand why things are happening the way they are. He's a patient and loving and caring God and Father, and he will listen to you. God's second response to Elijah is to his psychological nature. What's going on upstairs? What's going on in his head? What is he thinking? What is he feeling in this moment? And the third level, God responds to his spiritual nature. And when God responds to spiritual nature, we're talking about God speaking to us. When God speaks to Elijah. And I just want to note, there's there's something to kind of take away here is that there's this moment that you know, he's met kind of these, these initial needs or kind of responded to him with these initial things. Uh, but there's a space between the spiritual response and there's, it's 40 days of him seeking God headed to the mountain of God. And that's something noteworthy because I thought about that and I was like, man, you know, it's so cool. He gets to hear from God and this, you know, we're going to look at this really awesome moment he has. And yet uh, I'm thinking, man, when's the last time one of us took 40 minutes to really seek God? When's the last time we took 40 days i'm like man i'm I'm not sure if if i've really taken 40 minutes today to to just say you know what i'm turning everything off no phone nothing no tv everything off i'm gonna just go and seek god be alone with him press into his presence so there's just something to be said about that because we know that those who seek him find him and elijah has he's he sought god on the mountain and god speaks to him because god calls us to do that that's there's a it's a goes both ways. God's always calling us to him, and as we take that step and seek him out, uh, we find him. And God speaks to us today, not always on mountains, in, uh, as we're going to see here, but through his word, number one, and through the Holy Spirit within us. Finally, we get to where God speaks. So let's read this, and I'm just going to read through what happens again in verse 11 through 13. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain, In the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth. Of the cave. I just want to note here that God, God doesn't always do things the same way twice. And that's for our own experiences and the experiences of others. Even when he speaks to us, he doesn't always do it the same way twice. Let's look at where Elijah is when this is happening. In verse 8 and 9, it tells that it says that he went to Horeb, or the mountain of God, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. Interesting thing, Horeb also has another name, Mount Sinai. And uh, another interesting thing, and I'm not, this, this, I don't think this is a coincidence. The Bible's not very good at coincidence. Usually there's a reason for things. Uh, but that's the same mountain that Moses was on when he saw the presence of God. And that word clef, that's tr- translated cleft normally in, uh, for Moses' accounting, he went into the cleft of the rock, is the same word here for cave could be possibly 
that Elijah is standing in the very, spent the night in the very same cave that Moses was when the Ten Commandments were given. And maybe Elijah had an expectation on how God was going to speak to him. Maybe he expected that God was going to speak to him in the earthquake as he did with Moses when he came down from the mountain. Or maybe he expected to hear from God in the whirlwind as he spoke to Job through a whirlwind. Or maybe he expected God to speak through the fire as he did through to Moses when he called Moses through the burning bush. I don't know if Elijah was expecting to hear God speak to him in a whisper. I think that might have been surprising. Often you might be looking for a whisper in your life, but God's like coming at you with a whirlwind. I know I've experienced that one. And maybe you're expecting a whirlwind or fire, something really big in your life, and God's like trying to whisper something to you. God doesn't always speak to us the same way twice. And it reminds me of just the importance and and just how vital community can be when it comes to this. Because the more that we learn from each other and grow from each other and, and just learn how each other are experiencing God and experiencing God's presence and, and being led by God, it's going to help us. It's going to help us to know God in all of his diversity and all of the ways that he works. I think of Mary and Martha as just a quick example. Really fascinating story. Mary and Martha both come to Jesus with the exact same thing. Lazarus is dead. Where were you? Mary gets tears. Jesus cries with her. Martha gets disciplined. She gets a reprimand. What? That doesn't seem fair. Why? They both had the same situation. Why is one getting one and the other? Because each got what they needed. Each got what they needed. And when we understand that, oh, man, God spoke to you, Giannis, this way. And well, let me tell you how God spoke to me this way and how God has worked in my life through these different things. Oh, now we get to see this bigger picture of God. So it just kind of shows that we need to be in community and hearing from one another and how God is working in our lives. It expands our understanding of God in his nature and how he speaks to each and every one of us individually and uniquely, especially as he speaks through us through his word and through prayer. And it also, when we do that, when we have that greater understanding through our community and that growth, it helps us prevent or it helps prevent us from making Elijah's mistake. Elijah put God in a box. Elijah was putting God in a box. He knows how God should respond Right? The time of the revival was now. What's happening? Where are you at, God? He knew how things, he had his plan. And he put God into that box of his plan. But of course, God didn't, that wasn't God's plan. He's like, no, that's not my box. That's your box. Because he had his eyes so set on the miraculous, right? I mean, this is not that long ago. He was up on a mountain raining, having fire rain down and calling the rain to come back. And maybe he's had his eyes set on the miraculous and God chose to speak to him in something humble and small, a whisper. And God then asks Elijah again, Elijah, what are you doing here, right? Elijah makes his defense that he's alone again. I feel like in this moment, I almost, just as the text continues, I, I almost sense this smile of compassion and love as God's just has such as love and care for Elijah and such mercy, almost a smile on his face as he continues into what he's going to tell him next. 
You see, God didn't owe him anything. He didn't owe him anything. He didn't owe him any of that. But in his grace and mercy, he chose to go ahead and show Elijah just a little bit more of the plan. To give him, I think, peace about his situation. Because he does exactly what God tells him to do. And I think he needed that. Oh, yeah, okay, I had you in a box you, had some, you, you were doing something the whole time. You had your plan. You knew what you were doing. You see that in the last part of our text. As God tells him, you know, go and anoint this king and this king. He's like, I got a plan for my glory through them. And one of them, as far as we know, didn't even serve God in any way. He's like, but I'm, I'm going to use them. I want you to anoint them. I've got a plan to do what I'm calling, what, I've, what, I, what you've begun here. I'm continuing it with these people, and I need you to go and anoint them. And he also tells him about Elijah, who's going to follow after Elijah, who ends up getting a double portion of the Spirit from Elijah, does some just insane things. And he also tells him, you're not alone. You think you're alone, but you're not. And it's interesting, he, all of that time, he was kind of building up to this, right? Why didn't he just say at the, at the shrub when the angel Dude, you think you're alone? Get over yourself. I've, I've got 7,000 other people who haven't uh, worshipped Baal yet. But he's so gracious and merciful as he brings him to this point. He says, no, I've got, I've got these people. that were, They've been loyal to me the whole time. I've got a plan. Don't you see? I've, I've, I've got a plan. You, you're, you're trying to put me in a box, but I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. And God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, you had your idea. You had your idea of how things were going to play out. But you don't see the whole picture. This was only the beginning of something much bigger than just you. God did not let Elijah down. Elijah's plan is what failed him. It's his plan that failed him. God didn't let him down, but his plans failed him and what led him to despair. We are all invited to be a part of God's plan. And I want to encourage you with this. The, the question is never, God, what is your plan for my life? What is your plan for my life? The question is, the right question is, God, what is your plan and how can I be a part of it? What is your plan and how can I play a role in seeing its fulfillment? If it's a small role, a big role, whatever is best Show me how I can support what you're doing, what your mission is. And what is God's mission? He is working out salvation. He's always bringing salvation into the picture. And I want to just end with that idea and show you something, an expression of God's working out salvation for all people in Elijah's encounter with God. You see, Elijah was protected when he stood on Mount Horeb. He was shielded by the rock. As he was in that cleft, as he was in that cave, the rock face took the blunt force of everything that God brought. It was the rock that shielded him from the earthquake, from the fire. As mount, the mountains were being torn to pieces by the wind, he was protected by the rock. And many years after this event, Elijah and Moses, who both stood in that same place, in that same rock, possibly, I may be speculating a little bit, but uh, it does seem likely, since they were on the same mountain, talking to the same God, but anyway. 
Elijah and Moses are brought back to talk with Jesus. At that point, man, can you imagine Elijah's full vision? Oh, now I get it. Now I see the whole picture and how it was all about Christ. Peter was also there, as we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration. You see, Jesus is our rock. He is the rock that takes on the fire, the wind, the earthquake of God's wrath so that we are protected and shielded. And in the place of God's wrath, which we deserve in our sin, we are invited to enter into the presence of God. We're invited to come out into the presence of God and to hear the small voice, the whisper that we have today through the Holy Spirit. When that wind and fire came, I would have no doubt that Elijah had fear because God's wrath is like that. It's powerful. It's something to be feared. And if you are not shielded by that rock of Christ, you should be afraid of the wrath of God. It should bring fear. The Bible says, come to Christ. All those who are weary and heavy laden, all those who are lost and without a shepherd, all those who are dead can be brought into life. All those who are fearful and alone and afraid. He took the wrath of God on himself for us so that we can get the whisper of the Holy Spirit. We are offered intimate relationship with God Almighty through Jesus Christ. So if you don't have that protection today, if you don't have that protection today, I just want to end by encouraging you, please don't let this day end without talking to someone about what it means to know Christ and to be kept safe from the storm of God's wrath and offered instead relationship into and with a loving Father. I want to invite the band to come back up as we close and I'll pray as they come. Father, we thank you so much for your word, these humans of the Bible that we can examine and look at and learn from and grow from and be encouraged by. And today as we looked at this text, I just, I pray that each and every one of us, because it is so inherent in our humanity to have our plans and our ideas and our understandings and and try to put you into that box Father, I pray that you would break that box open for people today and that we would begin to see that you you have a plan. We are a part of your plan. We are a part of your purpose. And we would be able to surrender to that instead of being led into despair when plans don't go as we would like them to. Pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.